turn back now to uh, John chapter 20, the passage we looked at just or read just uh, a few moments ago. And uh, this evening we'll continuing uh, in the garden uh, by the tomb uh, from where we were this morning. This morning, um, you remember that we spent some time considering Peter and John as they attended the tomb on that first Easter morning. Although the tomb didn't contain the body of Jesus, they found his grave clothes there, the linen cloths and the face cloth folded up on the side. And we considered the, the, the evidence that they had in front of them. And we saw the effect that that had on Peter and John. Peter, we read, saw and began to consider what the grave clothes might mean. He began to theorize about it. But John, on the other hand, we read, saw and then understood and then believed. Well, as we read on in this chapter of John's Gospel, we find that characters enter and leave the scene, almost like characters in a play, You may recall that it was Mary Madeline who uh, first appeared on the stage in the first verse of of this chapter. And then she first raised the alarm in verse 2, running to Peter and John, telling them that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But once she'd summoned Peter and John... It's they who were at centre stage until they leave for their homes, as we read this morning in verse 10 at the end of the passage that we were looking at. Here in verse 11, the first verse this evening, Mary re-enters the stage, as it were. And it's here in this scene that we're going to spend a short while this evening considering what we may learn. Now, before we look at this passage in any detail, it's worth clarifying who Mary Madeline was. First thing to recognize is who she's not. In recent years, there have been a number of totally unfounded and salacious suggestions about a relationship between Mary and Jesus. We need to say from the outset that that's without any biblical foundation at all. Following on from that, we need to be clear that this Mary is not Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary, we understand, uh, Mary Madeline comes from Galilee uh, and is not Mary of Bethany. Neither is there anything in the scriptures to suggest that she's the woman described as a sinner in Luke chapter 7. Again, an idea that some people have put forward. Uh, There's no suggestion that she, Mary Madeline, is the woman who wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair while she was dining in the house of Simon. He was dining in the house of Simon. Turning, though, to what we do know about Mary Madeline, most of this is found in a few verses at the beginning of Luke chapter 8. For there we read that Mary Magdalene was one of a number of women who travelled around with Jesus and the twelve disciples as he went around preaching. 
And we're told there, it appears, that she was a woman of financial means. For we read that out of their resources, both she and the others provided for the material needs of this group of disciples. Mary then was a benefactor to Jesus and his disciples as they travelled and ministered. And this role as a benefactor was not without cause, for we're told that she had been possessed by seven demons and that these had been driven out of her. And it seems as if this uh, this release from this uh, demonic uh, uh, um, force had uh, had a dramatic life uh, effect upon her life. Her life had been transformed, and in gratitude to the Lord Jesus, she, along with uh, some other women, had become some of His most devoted followers. Indeed. It's notable that so devoted was she that she remained as the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified at Calvary. It seems that there was only one of his remaining 11 disciples who was there. All the others had fled. Remember, Peter had denied his Lord and the others scattered. Only John is recorded as remaining there with Jesus But John is not alone, for such is the devotion of Mary Magdalene and some of the other women, that they too remained with the Lord Jesus as he's nailed to the cross. Such was their love and their devotion to their Lord that we also read of Mary coming to the tomb along with the other women at the earliest opportunity after the Sabbath, first thing on that Sunday morning. And they come to anoint the body of Jesus, don't they? They come to perform this final act of respect and to express their grief. However, as we read this morning, their mission was interrupted by the discovery that the stone had been rolled away. The other women, it seems, if you look at the other Gospels and interweave that with what we have here in John, the other women, it seems, investigate a little further, while Mary runs to sound the alarm to alert Peter and John. And, of course, we considered their experience at the tomb this morning. Well, here in verse 11, we find Mary arrives back at the tomb after Peter and John have left. The scene we have here is one of abject grief, isn't it? Mary, alone by the tomb, distraught, weeping uncontrollably. Not only has Mary witnessed the brutal crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, but she's convinced that the body of this one whom she loved and revered that he's been taken from the grave. Remember what she said, what she declared to Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And there's no consoling her tears, is there? It's remarkable, isn't it? When she looks into the tomb, she sees the two uh, angels 
sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. But so consumed with grief she is that she's totally unfazed by it. And when they ask why she's weeping, her reply indicates that she's consumed with this same preoccupation. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Well, as you look on this scene of abject grief, we're going to consider it under three headings this evening. An identity mistaken, an identity revealed, and then an identity, an identity explained. An identity mistaken, an identity revealed, and an identity explained. Let's look then first at an identity mistaken. We see that in verses 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. The scriptures don't tell us why Mary turned round at that point. It may have been that she had that sense of someone behind her. Or maybe the angels in front of her indicated the presence of Jesus. Whatever the reason, we're told that she didn't recognize him, even when he spoke to her. He asked the same question as the angels, doesn't he? Woman, why are you weeping? And again, we see in Mary's reply her preoccupation with recovering the body of Jesus. Sir, she says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. She's beside herself, isn't she? It's it's pitiful almost, isn't it? She couldn't possibly have moved a corpse on her own. But so desperate is she to secure his body that she would try anything. We're told here that Mary didn't recognize Jesus, but supposed him to be the gardener. The precise reason for Mary's mistake isn't explained. Um, Perhaps it wasn't unreasonable for there to be a gardener there in the garden. But in a strange way, she wasn't mistaken at all. On one level, she took Jesus for someone who he was not. But at another level, Mary, as where Mary wept in the garden by the tomb that morning, she couldn't have been more right. Remember that at the beginning of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, we're told about another garden, the Garden of Eden. And we read in Genesis 2.15 that God appointed a gardener to look after it. For Adam was to put into the garden to tend and to keep it. Well, you know the story, don't you? Adam failed in that responsibility. He disobeyed God. 
He and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. He disobeyed God, and as a result, he had to leave his calling in the Garden of Eden. We read that uh, Adam was driven out of the garden. Not only that, though, his life as a gardener then became much tougher, didn't it, from that point onwards? Because he was cursed, and the curse that followed him was that thorns and thistles would grow in the ground that he tended. And Adam's experience is ours too, isn't it? When we examine our hearts honestly, what do we find? Don't we find wickedness and disobedience against God? Is it any surprise then that in our lives we find the equivalent of thorns and thistles Isn't it a surprise that thorns spring up and choke the word of God, which should be dwelling in our hearts? See, we need a gardener, don't we? We need someone who will tend our hearts and dwell within us. We need a gardener who will pull up the thistles and cut back the thorns. We need a gardener who will make his word dwell in us richly. We will need a gardener who will ensure that we bring forth fruit of righteousness and not selfishness and sin in our lives. Who would that gardener be? Not Adam, that's sure. He was a useless gardener. He disobeyed God. No, we need the second Adam, don't we? The one who obeyed his heavenly father perfectly. We need the second Adam who completed the task which was set before him. We need the second Adam who was able to declare it is finished when he died on the cross. We need that second Adam, the Lord Jesus, who then rose from the grave, demonstrating that he had indeed conquered the first Adam's sin. We need the Lord Jesus who rose from the grave demonstrating that he'd conquered the curse which followed from it. And Jesus is, of course, the one who can do all that in our lives and more. So you see, when Mary supposed that Jesus was the gardener, while at one level she mistook his identity, at another she was much closer to the truth than ever she could have thought. Well, if that's the mistaken identity, the identity mistaken, we move on to verse 16 and see an identity revealed. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni which means teacher. It's interesting, isn't it, that when Jesus first speaks to Mary, she doesn't recognize him. He addresses her back in verse 15 with the term woman. Now, in our world today, we might think that's rather cold and unfeeling, but that wasn't the case. The term woman was full of respect and tender care. Indeed, if you go back only two days earlier, 
Mary had been there at the cross when Jesus had used this same term to address his own mother just before he died. What did he say to John? He said, Behold your mother. And to Mary he said, Woman, behold your son. And Mary Madeline had been there as well, hadn't she? So it was a term of address that she was familiar with. And though she would have appreciated its warmth, she didn't recognize the voice of Jesus and didn't appreciate who was speaking to her. But then here in verse 16, a wonderful thing happens. Jesus no longer uses the generic term, but addresses Mary by name. And on hearing this, Mary immediately knows that it's Jesus who's there in front of her. And she responds to him. It's a wonderful thing, one level, because all of a sudden, Mary's abject grief and distress is all removed. It's like a great weight lifted from her. But it's also a wonderful thing because it highlights a truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. And not only that, he tells us two things about the good shepherd. He tells us two things that the good shepherd does for his sheep. First, he tells us that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And indeed, we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ has done that just two days earlier on the cross at Calvary. But secondly, we're told that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. And not only that, we're told that when he calls his own sheep by name, they follow him and they follow him. Because they know his voice. Isn't this what's happening with Mary here? The Lord Jesus calls her by name. And in some special way, she knows it is his voice which is calling. And when she is called by her name, she marvelously and wonderfully recognizes his voice. She knows who it is who is speaking to her. Friends, isn't this what happens to us all if we are the Lord's people? The scriptures are read, the gospel is preached, and then the Lord Jesus calls each one, calls each one by name, Andrew, Mary, John, whoever it is. That's what happens when the Lord Jesus works in our hearts. And it's a wonderful thought, isn't it, that he knows each of his sheep individually by name. He knows each one of us. He calls each one of us by name. And as the good shepherd calls, the sheep follow. Because the good shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And so Mary responds.
And it's not surprising, is it? She hears the voice of the good shepherd and she recognizes the voice and follows him. But it raises an important question, doesn't it? For each and every one of us. Have we heard the voice of the good shepherd calling us? And if you've heard the voice of the good shepherd, have you recognized that voice? And if you've recognized that voice, have you followed him? Well, that's the identity revealed of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we turn finally to an identity explained, which we see in verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. At first sight, the uh, the response of Jesus might seem a little harsh here, doesn't it? Mary has been distraught. She's uh, been crying and weeping, mourning over the Lord Jesus. And now she sees that he's alive. And she clings to him. It's a natural reaction, isn't it, for this woman who had been so distraught by the death of the Lord Jesus. This one who had been at the center of her life, the one who'd driven out seven demons, this one who'd restored her life to sanity, this one who she thought was dead and gone, is actually alive. Surely it's as if everything can go back to how it was before, can't it? The disciples will be together, gathered around the teacher, traveling around the countryside. Why then does Jesus say, do not cling to me? Well, it's clear from other encounters with the risen Christ that there was nothing wrong in Mary touching Jesus. The other women uh, who met Jesus, we have that recorded in Matthew 28, Uh, they fell at the feet of Jesus and cling to his feet, and they were not rebuked. And Thomas, you remember, doubting Thomas, was invited to touch the wounds of Christ a little later, just in this chapter. But here, as Jesus says, do not cling to me, Jesus is very gently and tenderly explaining to Mary that things will not be able to be as they were previously. He won't be with his little group of disciples traveling around the country and preaching. Mary can't cling to him because that season is now past. Now there's going to be a new relationship between the Lord Jesus and his disciples And it's a relationship which is far more wonderful than anything that has been before. And so the Lord Jesus goes on to explain not a new identity of himself, but a new identity which the disciples will have. 
Look again at verse 17. Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And there are three things I think we need to notice about these words of Jesus. And the first is that Mary is told to go and to speak to the brothers of Jesus. And it's clear from this context he isn't speaking about his physical half-brothers, but rather he is describing and referring to the disciples. And we commented earlier that uh, it was only John and the women who remained at the cross when the Lord Jesus was crucified. The disciples had scattered. They'd fled in fear. They'd abandoned him. Isn't this marvellous that even though they had deserted him, the Lord Jesus describes them as his brothers. And isn't that a wonderful picture of our salvation in Christ if we trust him for forgiveness? Even though they had deserted him, even though Peter had denied him three times, the Lord Jesus Christ did not hold a grudge. How often do we we say we forgive, and yet the offence hangs there in the air, doesn't it? From time to time it's recalled. We toss it over in our mind. We fret over it. We refer to it every now and again. Yet not so with the Lord Jesus. For his forgiveness is perfect. The Lord Jesus Christ has himself dealt with the sins of the disciples. They've been removed from them and placed on the Lord Jesus and dealt with at the cross. Amazing, isn't it, that the Lord Jesus has no reason to refer to any of the failings of the disciples. Rather, his response is to call them my brothers. The second thing to notice is that the Lord Jesus does not instruct Mary to tell the disciples that he's risen. Isn't that odd? That's not the big news in town. Jesus instructs Mary to tell the disciples that he is ascending. It's as if the Lord Jesus has moved on from that or from the, from his resurrection already. Miracle though it was, it's as if the Lord Jesus is saying, this is only one step into a greater, towards a greater exaltation when he will ascend to sit at his father's right hand as the disciples' representative and as their advocate and as their friend. And this tells us something about the importance of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing even now, for it is here in this role as the ascended Lord Jesus that he will fulfill the promise that he made to his father to every believer who the Father had given to him so that none would be lost. It's here in this role as the ascended Lord Jesus 
that he goes to prepare a place for us, doesn't he? He said, I go to prepare a place for you. So that when we die, we may go to be with him. It's here in this role as the ascended Lord Jesus that he sends the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to indwell his people and the one who gives strength and understanding for our Christian lives. But the final thing to notice in these words about the relationship is that Jesus describes the relationship between the disciples and his heavenly father. Remember, if we went right back to the beginning of John's gospel, we're given there a glimpse of the relationship between the father and the son. For there we read, the word was with God. It was a relationship where no sin intruded to disrupt the love and unity of the Godhead. It was a relationship of uninterrupted and undiluted joy. And it was a relationship which was uh, totally complete and utterly satisfying for, for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus speaks of this relationship when he speaks of ascending to his Father and to his God. But do you notice that Jesus doesn't just stop there? Because he also says that he is ascending to the disciples' Father and the disciples' God. And in doing so, he highlights that the Lord Jesus Christ has been on a mission. Yes, he came to atone for our sin by dying on the cross. Yes, the Lord Jesus came to rise again and conquer sin and death, but he also came to bring us into the family of God. You see, the language has all changed here. Jesus speaks of his disciples as being brothers. He uses the same words to describe their heavenly father as he has used to describe his heavenly father. This is the language of what we call adoption, being brought into this family relationship with God. One commentator puts it like this, the son of God became man that we might become sons of God. Now we need to be clear, Jesus did not say, I go to be with our Father and our God. There is a distinction. There's a difference between Christ's eternal sonship, being the Son of God, and our adopted sonship. Jesus has always been the eternal Son of God, whereas we will only ever be adopted by grace for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But isn't it still remarkable that we are adopted into God's family? We share in some way that embrace of love and unity with our Heavenly Father. And we look forward to a time when it will indeed be without distraction of sin in this life. 
The Puritan Thomas Watson says this. The wonder of God's love in adopting us appears all the more when we consider that God should adopt us when he had a son of his own. Men adopt because they want children. They adopt because they desire to have someone to bear their name. But that God should adopt us when he had a son of his own, the Lord Jesus, is a wonder of love. Christ is called God's dear son. A son more worthy than the angels. Now since God had a son of his own and such a son, how wonderful God's love in adopting us. We needed a father, but he didn't need sons. So Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me. There's another relationship for her to enjoy now. One that's far better than anything that she had before. It's alluded to in the psalm that we've just sung. And praise God, the relationship which Mary was entering into is a relationship that we can share as well when Jesus has called us by name and we have heard his voice and then we have followed him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that from all eternity uh, a covenant was made between the Father and the Son to redeem a people for himself. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ calling us by name. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of hearing the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of having your word to read And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that by your spirit you stir us in our hearts so that when we hear your voice call, we can recognize the voice and follow you. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege that that brings, not just of sin forgiven, not just for the certainty of an eternal life, but rather an even greater privilege that we should be made sons and daughters of God. We thank you, Lord, for the wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, forgave his disciples and called them brothers. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of the gospel uh, that that same forgiveness is available to us today. So, Lord, we bless you for all these truths. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, reflect and rejoice in them. And that that would indeed be our great delight and satisfaction. And we pray all these things in and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.